Ledger is a writing podcast clinically guaranteed to give your pet shinier and healthy fur. I'm Austin Wilson. Welcome to the show. Today I chat with Robin Sloan, author of Sourdough, Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore, uh, author of a bajillion and a half newsletters, which I think you should subscribe to, every single one of them. Go to robinsloan.com to find those. Uh, Mr. Sloan stopped by to chat with me about computer coding. Uh, first of all, yeah, that was the, the big thing I wanted to talk to him about, along with doing all those things I just mentioned. He, he writes computer code. Um in his free time, he doesn't do it professionally. This is his description of how he does it. Um, and he creates programs and does all kinds of cool stuff with with computer code. And when I first started thinking about this show, that was one of the things I wanted to, to talk to somebody about is how you start writing computer code. Not how do you learn, but like if you sit down to write a program, what's the very first thing you do? How do you go about putting a program together? Had a little bit of a technological hiccup there at the beginning of the show. Um, I was telling Mr. Sloan about finding uh, Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore and being very drawn to the cover, which was designed by Rodrigo Corral, um, and how the book sort of felt to me like someone had uh, snuck in while I was in kind of a dream state and asked me what I would want to read about and the, the kind of adventure that I would want to go on. Um, so this, the episode starts in the middle of him responding to me saying that because there was a, a little bit of a recording uh, mix up, but uh, we just kind of went through it. So you'll hear it just start with with him talking. Um, I'll probably fade into it because, you know, I know how to do the fade in thing. Um, other than that, yeah, enjoy the show. I, I was super happy to have him have him on and I'm excited for everyone to hear. Uh, what we talk about. Um, to check out my stuff, go to austinrwilson.com. As always, I'm also on Twitter at Austin R. Wilson. Uh, if you have any questions about the show or uh, just want to comment on it or, or tell me anything about it, uh, email me at ledgerbooks at outlook.com. You can also like, subscribe, comment on, rate uh, the show on every single podcast network that is possibly out there. So uh, please do so if you like it. That really helps me find new listeners. Uh, I already have some other shows scheduled for this year and even another one coming up here uh, soon after this one gets published. So keep your eyes out for that. Uh, but as for now, here's Robin Sloan. And believe that there are other people out there um, that will that will find it just as appealing um, as I do. And uh, yeah, I think that has been the case with Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore. And of course, it's always gratifying uh, to realize that there are other people out there who are sort of, you know, weird and, and curious in, in exactly the same ways that you as the author are. Right. Yeah, so I, I mean, another thing, I, I don't think I can cannot mention the cover because um, the the cover I saw was the the paperback cover with, with the amazing glow in the dark books. I think uh, uh, Rodrigo Corral is the the designer that did it, and it it really drew my eye. And I think that's one thing at, out of all of your stuff, whether it's Annabelle Scheme or, or any of your newsletters. There's always this really great design element. Is that something you've always had in mind, or did that develop as you got? more serious about putting your stuff out how did that how did that get to be where it is well i mean aspirationally of course it's always been the case um whether i've achieved it on my own or or with collaborators um has varied over time i do have to give all the credit to rodrigo corral i mean really one of the great um american book designers of the yeah. last several decades and um you know for a book like mr penumbra's 24-hour bookstore in particular which for folks who haven't read it, you know, the the plot itself kind of dances between the worlds of physical print books and, you know, very comfortable, right. mysterious bookstores and the digital, you know, ebooks. It it talks a lot about ebooks and their different properties and and their, you know, the great appeals and the limitations and everything else. So for a book with that content, it actually seems like the physical book had to have something that was special or strange or secret and um it was all rodrigo corral's idea to use the glow in the dark ink on the uh on the front cover and what i love about it is that it actually is sort of a surprise you know people i think yeah. most people of course not the people the people listening to this i'm sorry you've we've we've spoiled it for you we spoiled the surprise <laughs> um, but a lot of people over the last decade who have picked up the book didn't know that it had that special property and so i've received many many emails over the years i could always tell like that it was this kind of email because like sometimes there would be often there would be no subject line and the <laughs> typing would be like kind of bleary, you know, and kind of like muddled. <laughs> yeah. Someone would have, and they'd say they're like, oh, I just got up to pee. It's like 3am and 
are you aware that your book glows in the dark? Um, which is great. You know, that's a, just a wonderful, a wonderful moment to have created. Have you ever messed with anyone and been like, what? Are you serious? Does it? Uh, no, 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 no. I don't. I'm sorry. I don't have the, I don't have the malevolence. <laughs> oh, no. I, that maybe that means maybe that I do. Because that, that was one of the first things that I thought was be like, are you kidding? Oh, my gosh. You got the one, the one special book. Please redeem it for a, <laughs> yeah, don't. Know, your ticket, your ticket to the real Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore. <laughs> yeah. That would be awesome. That, that Maybe do that on one of your forthcoming books. Give, you know, do a, a big tour like the the Wonka tour. Um, so, yeah, I mean, although, yes, we are going to end up talking about Mr. Penumbra and we are going to be uh, end up talking about Sourdough, one of the real big reasons that I wanted to chat with you is because of your computer coding. Um, which is a thing I discovered about you after, uh, I read Mr. Penumbra. Uh, I ended up finding your, your website. I always love reading about process and blogs. And I, I try to kind of dig into an author's work and world as much as I can. And you had a ton of stuff for me to dig into. And so I found out that you were a computer coder. Um, and there's a, you have a, a blog post on your website where you refer to yourself as a home cook of a computer coder. Do you want to kind of explain to the listeners what that means? Yeah, you know, I that's actually a relatively recent um I don't know what to call it, innovation or or discovery of that that framing for myself because and I, I think this is not uncommon. Um, I have loved computers and been kind of a, a nerd about computers for a long long time. I mean, really since I was a little little kid. I never I've never been a professional computer programmer and although I've kind of been computer adjacent in a lot of my jobs. Um, it's it never been my job. You know, I've never been responsible for like computer programs or like a server or an app that like, you know, thousands or millions of people use. And that puts you into sort of a funny space because I'm, I'm not just a, a, you know, computer curious person. I really do know how to make things happen on computers and servers. And I know how to make apps and I have made and published apps. But I'm a long way away from that sort of Apple, Facebook, Google scale of sort of seriousness. And so, like, what is that? I wondered for a long time. And I actually think that terminology is right. You know, you think of someone who's a really good home cook, like like a really good one. They're into it. Um, if you ever get invited over to dinner at their house, you're really excited because you know it's going to be like they're going to like take the opportunity to do something sort of like overly complicated or ambitious just to like have an excuse to do it and share it with their friends. Um, but at the same time, they're never going to open a restaurant, um, both because they don't have those special skills and also because they don't want to. That's like not the mode of cooking and sharing that skill that like appeals to them. So when it comes to programming, I have now realized that's exactly what I am. I am your super nerdy, perhaps slightly too ambitious home cook friend. And, you know, every so often I try to share what I make with uh, other people. Yeah. And so one of the things that I saw you share, you have a, an ebook. Um, it, it, can you kind of explain? I'm such a layman. Like I've, you're actually one of the inspirations for me trying to learn how to code. So I've sort of poked around in Python and um, not really made anything. I'm still trying to learn and, and kind of just sort of limping along. But you made a, an ebook like sort of format that you put up on GitHub that's free. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I think it's kind of similar to the home cook thing. It's both, of course, a wonderful um, uh, gift to to be able to use those tools, but it's also a bit of a curse because it makes you perhaps a little more critical of the things you run across in the world. And um, in in particular, for me, my interest in programming and my my great, you know, overarching interest in books and reading, they kind of intersect um, where, where it comes to ebooks and the, the presentation of stories uh, online or, you know, on screens, I guess we could say. And the truth is, I don't really like any of the ways that um, particularly fiction is presented on the web. Right. Uh, I think anytime you just kind of post like and I, I mean, I'm, I've done this myself, so I, I, I include myself in this criticism when you just like post a story as like a web page um, that you like scroll down till you get to the end. I just think some of the magic and the the sort of I don't know the 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 potential for for that fictional dream state gets kind of sucked out of it. And so the question I pose to myself is, you know, okay, big talker, uh, if you think those are so lame, what um what what do you want it to look like? You know, how do you want it to work? So I cobbled together something that I I'm pretty happy with at this point. There's there's of course room for improvement, but the the template I made, um and and yeah, it's it's what I use to present my novella 
that I um, wrote a couple of summers ago called Annabelle Scheme uh, and the Adventure of the New Golden Gate. Uh, and that's up online free for anybody to read um, presented in that in that new kind of web ebook format that I developed. So one of my goals is to to utilize your free ebook template, which I still haven't figured out yet. Um, I, I will eventually because I like you, you know, I, I do try to publish fiction on my website and I agree with you that you get to a point where you're just like, yeah, this is just words on this internet page and you're scrolling through it. And one of the ways that I try to re to bring back the magic, not only just this, but I put illustrations with my stories partially because I'm from the comic book world, but also that is a, a way to sort of say, okay, you read the story. Now here's a big image from it. Um, yeah, for sure. For sure. But utilizing those and I love Squarespace, but I've all, I found their site to have those constraints where it's like, okay, yeah, I'm just kind of copying and pasting my text into this box and I'm not sure what else I can do with it. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the truth is that, um, the, the overall frame of the web browser, um, it's, it's pretty hard to overcome some of the things it does to, to the content that it's presenting. You know, it, it's easy to take this for granted when you're reading a, a physical book, but a physical book, a print book, it's just the book. You know, you open it up and you're looking at the text. And of course, it can be laid out and presented all sorts of different ways, whether it's, you know, uh, Moby Dick or, or a graphic novel, you know, with all that wonderful kind of richness and variation on the page. But it it is what you're looking at. It's the only thing you're looking at. Whereas in a web browser, at least on a laptop or, a, you know, a desktop computer, um, there's always this like frame of other stuff, you know, there's like mm-hmm. the tabs at the top and maybe there's like your bookmarks and there's the menu bar and maybe there's other applications that are kind of open and lurking in the background. And those are small things, but I do, I truly believe they all add up and um, they, they kind of just take you out of that zone of, of immersion. Or, I mean, I, I do, I think of it as dreaming. I think when you're really yeah. deeply into fiction, it is very much like a dream and I think it's hard to dream inside a web browser. So it's kind of, I mean, in a way you're like, okay, I guess we're just going to do as as much as we can within this frame. But I think part of it is also recognizing that it's it's really, in a, in a sense, not the right place for, for fiction in the first place. Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff to overcome. And your, your ebook template, I think, is a step in the right direction. And I've loved reading about you in your newsletter, you talking about the ways texts are presented, uh, specifically in video games, which we're going to get to here in a little bit. Um, but as far as coding goes, um, what would you say to someone who's, who wants to code, but maybe thinks it's too hard or that they don't have the tools uh, to, that would allow them to, to start coding? Right, boy, that is such a good question. Um, and and I, I try not to be too, um, I try not to take for granted the fact that I have been, you know, at a at a very low level, but still, I've been coding and kind of tinkering with code for like, um, more than 30 years, you know, like the great yeah. majority of my life at this point. And that is a literacy that is built up over time. So that even when I encounter something that's confusing or frustrating, I have this whole reservoir of like, experiences and techniques and kind of problems I've encountered before and I can draw on that exactly the way that a you know a talented cook would they're like oh, okay I, I know what's happening here or like this reminds me of you know this other thing so if a person doesn't have that if they're like I mean I think it's actually pretty pretty similar not to like overextend uh or beat the analogy to death but I think it's pretty <laughs> similar to cooking if someone's like oh my gosh I've not literally never cooked anything in my life and now I want to finally cook some food for myself where do I start Right. I think the answer has to be with something small and achievable to begin yeah. with. You know, it's just you're you're just not gonna you're not gonna get anywhere. I, I think it's in a way it's actually similar also to fiction writing. So maybe there's a commonality here between all all crafts and skills. Um, when people ask me about starting to write fiction, one of the things that I say, you know, I, of course you can get lots of different advice from from different people. But one of the things I say is you need to find ways to finish things. And if that yes. means writing a short story that's literally five paragraphs long, like some weird little micro fiction, that's where you need to start. Because to start something and then have it sort of diffuse into diffuse into like, uh, well, you know, I never quite got there. Or like, oh, that's not the right thing after all. I'm going to start something else. To do that over and over and over again, it just sucks your energy away, I think. Yes. Um, for me, at least, um, the thing, the, the sort of like little little dollops of, of fuel really in the tank was the feeling of, oh, I finished it. And, you know, it's small and humble and, and not like the grand, you know, novel of my dreams. 
but I did finish it and I can look at it and I can kind of evaluate it. So that's all to say, I think you got to start with like coming up with something super tiny, some little program, maybe just for fun, that's going to do something for you. And then you figure out how to, uh, how to write that program. So the, the equivalent of the grilled cheese sandwich, the, the yeah, thing that exactly. you, you, yeah, you know, you're going to start with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What is that? Yeah. A, a, a boiled egg, you know? Um, yes. Yeah. What is the absolute simplest thing that will, that will still be edible uh, and, uh, and sustain you? It's hard, you know, though, I think the fundamental that like the, the most important thing to just keep saying is that it's legitimately really difficult. Um, programming is a different way of thinking. Um, and so just like anything else, people really do have to be prepared for some some weirdness and some frustration. I, I think it's uh, it's silly to pretend otherwise. For sure. Yeah, I agree. And you said something in there that um, actually leads into my next question, which is that it's similar to fiction somewhat. And one of the key questions that even led me to start recording the, this show is, um, how do you start? Uh, so I, I really want to talk to various kinds of writers and talk about how you start. And one of the first things I thought about was, how does a computer coder start? Because when I've been, you know, tinkering with the tiny amount of code that I've messed with, um, I've always had like a, the book being like, hey, start like this. So if you, Robin, are going to start writing a, a program like, OK, so Boopsnoop, the, the program you talk about in, in that blog post on your website where you refer to yourself as a home cook of a computer coder. How do you start? What's the very first thing you do? Do you start writing code out in a notebook? Do you get into um, a program like Genie or, or somewhere where you're actually writing code? What's the very first thing you do? Yeah, that's a good. That's a, a great question. I think um, that actually a really good kind of spark for um, both programs and and fiction, honestly, is a little um, sense of persnickety annoyance or frustration. And I, I realize that maybe sounds like not like that's the creative impulse. I thought it was something more, you know, generous or like, you know, the you're 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 accepting the the spirit of creativity. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you will do that eventually. But um I mean I can say that that many of my stories and computer programs have started from a sense of me going, man, that's not how it should work. Or I'm right. really frustrated with really really it's almost a sense of of like I'm looking for something and I can't find it out there in the world. And whether that's a certain kind of story or book to read or a program that does a certain thing. And it turns out that like annoyance and frustration can be very powerful fuel <laughs> if you can find a way to harness them. Right. Um, and yeah, that 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 app, um, which is a, a super simple little video messaging app that I made for my family. It has four users, all members of my family was created out of my, I mean, first there was an app that we used that went out of business and I was just kind of, sad and frustrated about that. And then I looked around at the other alternatives, like, you know, WhatsApp and Instagram and whatever yeah. else. And I was just frustrated by all of them. They weren't what I wanted. They were just full of too much other garbage. And so that, that recognition, that's what led me. I mean, it, it was for me, even at, at my skill level, it was very difficult to make that app. Um, but I, I pushed through and I did it because I just was like, come on, there's gotta be something <laughs> like this. And, and honestly, in, in the, um, in the pushing through to finish many of my, of my books and stories, which, which likewise were like difficult. Um, there was that sense of like, no, this has got to exist. Like, yeah. come on, if I don't make this, nobody else is going to make this. And, uh, so yeah, I think, I think if you can find that, that little, that little fire, um, and, and I, for different people, it's going to be in different places. It's going to have to do with different micro genres or different weird specific problems they have in their lives. And, and you kind of just follow that. I think that's good advice. Yeah. Um, as far as actually writing the code. Um, and again, I'm a super layman, just about as beginner as possible. Um, and this also sort of lines up with the, the fiction co uh, correlative we were talking about, which is, um, is there any desire when you're writing code to make that very first line of code super elegant? Are you aiming for just strict util utilitarianism um, where it just gets to the next line. I, I know based on what I've read, you know, there's a lot of uh, code you end up writing that uh, sort of affects older code that you wrote in certain ways, which again, very lame take on that. But is there any sort of impulse or even need to make that first line of code elegant in any way? 
Well, I mean, that's a very astute question. And in fact, I think um, there is as wide a range of approaches to that, to programming in that way, as there is to writing, you know, to, to, to prose composition. Um, I'm sure that you, uh, you know, know other writers and, and know this about yourself, whether you're very fussy and you're like, no, it must all be perfect. Or if you're like a, a devotee of the vomit draft, um, yeah. as I am, you know, that's I am I am a I've learned to be a vomit drafter. I really um, take very seriously the kind of um, uh, the, the usefulness of just kind of barfing things out, getting words out <laughs> right. to then to then have material you can look at and work on. Um, and not everybody, you know, likes that. Not everybody has mastered that uh, or whatever. It, you, you can't quite vomit draft computer code because right. there is like a baseline level of things that literally like won't function. But yeah. you can you can come pretty close. And and in particular, I mean, this this might be a little too into the weeds, but, you know, you you have led me here. So, so oh well, <laughs> no, let's um, go. There's there's. There's there's a few different kinds of programming langu- languages out there in the world. You can kind of divide them up into into these broad categories. And one is something called a compiled language, where um, you know you write all your code and then you say, okay, run this program. And first thing, the computer looks at all of the code all together, and it does all these different checks. And it basically it's essentially a copy editor, and it's saying like, well, is this? Have you made any mistakes? Have you you know is anything in here inconsistent? Is it going to cause you problems later? And if it if there is something like that, it will prevent you from running the program. It will give you all these error messages and it will say, you must fix all of this before before we even begin. And that obviously is useful in a lot of different ways, just the way a copy editor is useful. Mm-hmm. However, there's another kind of pr- programming language that's called an interpreted language. And what happens in that case is that it's it's really quite radical. The computer just goes line by line and it says, all right, listen, you're the programmer here. So I'm just going to do what you tell me. And if something weird happens, well, I mean, I guess that's your fault. So it just goes from top to bottom and it starts going through the program and whatever you tell it to do, it executes it line by line by line. And um, these interpreted programming languages are known to be a little more loose and freeform. And although they do, in fact, allow you to make more errors, they're also easier to write. They're just like, it's more sort of, uh, I mean, the word I want to say is chill. It's more like chill and yeah. relaxed and fluid to just start writing the program. Um, my favorite programming language, the one I, I've used way more than any other, is called Ruby. Um, and, uh, and and it is one of these interpreted languages. And um, from from my part, you know, again, different people have different opinions. I find that way of embarking on a program, of sort of just, just feeling your way line by line, until you get to an error and you're like, okay, well, I guess I better figure this out. Uh, I just find that very copacetic. It really matches my <laughs> temperament, I guess you could say. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I'm i right along there with you. Um, the barf method of, of writing, while not something that I did, uh, you know, in my younger days as I was learning and getting my feet under me, it, it's something that I got a lot more comfortable with. And yes, I noticed in, in coding, I couldn't do that. I had to be a lot more um, specific about the things I was putting into the program. Um, is Ruby one that you would suggest starting with or I, I absolutely would. Yeah. You know, if, if somebody was saying like, listen, I just want to start to get a feel for how you talk to computers. So like, and I have no preconceptions, you know, just tell me where to go. Um, I would say that either, um, either Ruby or, or Python and, and between those two, I would, I would, it's just my personal opinion, but I would pretty strongly recommend Ruby. I think it's just, Wonderful. And it has almost a like the the code itself, you know, I, I'm sure people listening to this have um, who are not programmers have looked at some computer code before and they know that sometimes it can look like a real like garble of like oh, yeah. cryptic symbols and like little angle brackets and braces and stuff like that. Ruby, one of the things that makes it so different is it's very linguistic. Like often you'll read a line of Ruby code and it reads almost like an English sentence in a really appealing way. So, um, you know, especially, frankly, for the literary minded, um, for people who have a, a taste for language and, and a nice sentence, I think I think there's a lot to, to recommend Ruby. Well, that is a fantastic segue to my next question, which is how similar does writing code feel for you specifically um, to when you're writing fiction? Is there any sort of uh, similar feeling at all? I mean, we've been kind of taught by social media and by pop culture that coding is this very mathematical, um, you know, different side brain as uh, being creative in a different way. Is there a connection between those two things for you? Yeah. So it's interesting. I want to say both yes and no, um, because at the most basic level, like, 
Um, do I use uh, techniques and tools that I have learned writing fiction in the practice of programming? No, not really. I mean, it's it's just that what what makes a good story, what makes a good paragraph, you know, what makes a paragraph of prose successful, just has almost nothing to do with what makes a a block of code successful. At the same time, I want to insist that um, there is not that division, the one you just kind of invoked of like, well, you know, either you're, you know, one of the quantitative people or you're one of the poets, either you're you've got the, the steel trap mind of a logician or, you know, maybe you can go write fairy tales. Of course, that's nonsense. Um, and uh, sure. brains, you know, overlap and crisscross in all sorts of different ways. And I will say, even though I uh, have never been myself a professional programmer, I have worked with many professional programmers and many of the most talented, I mean, just prodigious programmers who could like create the most amazing kind of like cathedrals of functionality for like really big, important websites. Um, they were the people who had been liberal arts majors in college. They they had studied, you know, philosophy or English and discovered then this other aptitude that led them into code, um, of course, and because it was like very remunerative. And they were like, well, OK, if you would like to pay me a lot of money to make code, I guess I guess I, will, <laughs> I guess I will do that instead of write poetry. Um, but but there just there was no incompatibility. And, and quite the contrary. I just think that that people with with that sort of uh, humanistic temperament will find all sorts of uses for that in uh, not just writing the code, which is like only one part of it, but but just thinking about systems and and you know, the human part of how people you know relate to computers and computer programs it's all like it's totally humanistic so there's no there's no right in there well what do you think about um so if, if you're writing a computer program um kind of no matter what size but let's say sort of medium size maybe the app uh, that you made boop snoop um and you're writing a novel um as far as uh I guess what's the best way to put it? Like ma maintaining your mental approximation of what the thing you're creating will eventually be. Do, do those feel similar? Does that make sense where you kind of are pe like picking away at these little parts that will eventually become a whole yeah. and maintaining that through line? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that the, does that feel the um, same? That's, that's a really, really good question. I, and I, I have to confess that I've never, I've never really thought about it or, or asked myself that question. And I actually think that for me, this might be a little opposite from the way that that most people think about these things. But for me, um, the software stuff actually tends to be much more, I don't know what I want to say, like intuitive or like following your nose in the end than the fiction is. Yeah. Um, I, you know, there's, of course, everyone has heard uh, from fiction writers who say like, you know, I, I never have any idea where the story is going to go. I just follow the characters and they sort of lead me and it's one surprise after another. Uh, I am not like that as a fiction writer myself. It's not that I have a perfectly locked down airtight outline that I'm sort of inflating with prose, but I do generally have yeah. a sense of like, as I embark, I'm like, okay, I know what I want this to be. I know generally where I want it to go. So I've got to figure out how to do that in a way that's really like cool and fun to read and, you know, evocative and has some, you know, richness or, or whatever else. Um, I have, but I do have a plan. I, I guess that's all to say. I do have a plan. And, <laughs> and with my programming stuff, I, I mean, I guess you could say I have a very rough plan, but the truth is I am usually kind of finding my way. Like what's the saying, you know, crossing the river by feeling for the stones. I really, like yeah. every step I'm like, okay, that works. Uh, all right, cool. That's an achievement. What can I do now that will also work? And, uh, and again, that's not how professional programmers do it. They have a plan. They're like, we need to make a photo sharing application. And, you know, if we do it right, it's going to earn us our fortunes and it's got to do X, Y, and Z. And, uh, I'm not, I'm not serious enough a programmer to do that. So I just, I guess, I guess you could say I approach it more like a poet. I just am sort of like, Hmm, where's the feeling going to take me next? And, uh, and, <laughs> right. then when I, and then when I reach my limit, I'm like, well, I don't know how to make anything else. It's done. And so the things I make end up being end up being pretty simple. See, for me, and I think this probably just speaks to how little code I know and, and what my actual talent level is with coding, which is to say none. My fear in a situation like that would be like, I want to make a program that does this thing. But what if I get halfway through and I realize that that thing is impossible? Yeah, that's what you have to write. It's well, you know, it's I think it's similar to fiction writing where you actually part of the the um process is to learn to scale your ambitions right. in an appropriate way. Like, you know, you, you actually, if you're, you've never written a line of fiction before, you cannot begin by saying, 
well, what I'd like to write is a nine book fantasy <laughs> saga. Like, right. I mean, it'd be nice, but you just can't. You, sure. That's, that's completely absurd to say that. So instead, you have to learn how to scope it down and say, well, you know what I'd like to write is actually um, 10 lines of really good flavor text for the backs of like imaginary Magic the Gathering playing cards. Like, yes. Maybe I could I can I do that? Like, could I could I crank out like 10 or 20 of those really, really good evocative lines? OK, let's try that. Um, and that's a, that's a thing to learn how to how to scale and scope your your objectives. So I think the same is true of programming. You know, I think a person by accident or or through naivete might say, you know, you, yeah, you might say like, okay, well, what I really want to make, what I want to program is like a uh, writing app for myself that keeps track of all my notes, ideas, character designs, blah blah blah. You're like, no, that's like writing the nine book fantasy saga. <laughs> what you have to say is you're going to write a program that is going to generate a random character name for you to use. And every time you run the program, it'll give you a different random character name. Like that would be a good first program for someone to try to make. See, for me, that's uh, that scale lesson. Um, you know, in my in my more trying moments at the keyboard, that's a, a lesson I wish I would have learned a little earlier because yeah, I mean, it's, you got to learn it. Everybody, I think everybody goes through that because the, because I mean, but it's, it's so, it's so natural, right? The things we love are the nine book fantasy sagas. So when you think of what you want to make, you're like, well, I want to make one of those. And yeah, it is, it's only through some hard reckonings that you realize you, you gotta, you gotta build up to that. You just don't have the muscles for it. It's like trying to, it's like trying to lift a car, you know, you're like, okay, well maybe, Maybe I could become strong enough to lift a car, but first I'm going to have to start with this like bag of flour and and work my way up. So all of that actually sort of connects with uh, the next thing. Um, I was so insanely interested in your project, which is tentatively called Perils of the Overworld. So a, a really big deal when you when you announce this in your in your newsletters. It has its own dedicated newsletter. Um, and for listeners, if you don't know anything about it, uh, it's a sort of text-based adventure game, but also has visualizations, uh, which it's it's on pause right now. I saw on your website while you finish your next book. Um, but there were so many questions I had about your writing and, and video game writing specifically, which we're going to get into a little bit more. Um, but with Perils of the Overworld... There was immediately this part of my brain that fired where it was wondering if there is a way to sort of gamify writing in a way that produces publishable fiction or stories. And I know there's a lot of stuff out there now that's like, hey, let's help you write or, you know, NaNoWriMo and, and some of those things. But here I mean a, a literal game that that gamifies writing. And I don't think that's that's not to say that that was your goal with with Perils of the Overworld, but watching you put some of the code together where it is this sort of iterative story that's being told based on uh, responses, which there are a lot of games that do that. Um, do you think it's possible for writing to be gamified in such a way? Oh, Austin. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I think it's called poetry or the, or the many, the many forms of poetry, you know, I think, or, or not, not even just poetry, but, you know, writing with, with rules and constraints or, or kind of game mechanics behind it. Um, you, you may have run across this um, really incredible, it, they, they almost are like something out of a novel themselves, a group, um, it's, they've been around for decades, a sort of uh, loosely affiliated group of experimental poets called the Ulipo, um, based, of course, in France. Um, uh, these uh, have such luminaries as the author who wrote an entire novel without using the letter E in French, which is like <laughs> uh, kind of a big deal. Um, and they have all sorts of different sort of um, word games and experimental stories and novels and all of it. I mean, it's just so clearly about creating games and challenges for themselves and for each other, which then obviously become highly motivating. It's, I mean, it's just like solving a crossword puzzle. You're like, oh, I'll have to figure out a way to do this. And um, yeah, I think I think there's a rich, rich, rich history to that kind of writing and that kind of uh, sort of armature for writing and of course you could you could find ways to express all of that digitally but that's not required you know it can just as easily right. be something that you just have in your head and and you use pen and paper right well I, and also this sort of touches on something you said earlier about uh, a print book where it is the thing you know like it, this is the thing that you have and it's here for the purpose of giving you these words on the page um 
the thing that I kept thinking about with a, with a video game where it's like, okay, you're going to play this video game. And by the time it's done, you're going to have written a short story. Um, how would we struggle with the idea of someone coming to the game, feeling like they are doing something other than having fun? Um, I guess the, the idea of like altering the game so much that it, pe- it feels like someone is being tricked because like, I don't go to play a game like, let's say death stranding, um, that Hideo Kojima game, which is amazing. Um, like I don't play that for any other reason than the game. I'm not playing it. Cause I'm like, okay, I'm going to get a, get a short story out of this. Like, is that something we would run up against? Oh, I don't know. You know, I think it's, a, I think it's a really interesting idea that to me, the, the challenge of course, um, you know, in a way, like like the simple prompting, like creating a space in which to ask people um, or even, you know, require that people actually do the writing and produce the word count, that gets you a lot of the way there. I mean, because as we've discussed, it's just that getting words down um, that, that often is that first kind of stumbling block. I, I do wonder how a computer program would deal with the step of sort of evaluation of saying like, okay, now you've got something down, like, like good, good to get the vomit draft. Um, but if the goal, of course, is something publishable, there does need to be that sort of critical step of like, what's next? How do we improve this? How do we make this better? Traditionally, that's something that you do by sharing a draft with, you know, friends or people in like a little writing group, or even just letting it sit for a long time. And then essentially using yourself, your future self as the friend, sure. to be like, okay, well, now I've got a little distance from this. Um, is it any good? So the question is, could a computer program do that kind of evaluation? I think the state of the art now is that it really could not, um, you know, at least not in any really useful way. But um, who knows? You know, maybe that's maybe that's just around the corner. There's going to be some great AI critic um, that can actually provide uh, useful and actionable feedback to a to a you know aspiring writer. Potentially, yeah. I mean, AI. I've seen a lot of stuff, you know, about. AI's actual uses in the world and how we are working alongside it. Not as much as people think we're just going to be like, all right, AI, go do this thing as much as we are guiding it. So yeah, potentially that's yeah, where right. we, we end up. Uh, but I mean, the, the big thing I kept thinking about as I like sort of played out this, this mental game with myself about, could this be a game that we made is that I, I maybe ended up somewhere similar to where you just did where it's like, yeah, but you eventually arrive at a place where you have to go outside of the game. There, there, there has yeah, to be something right. else. I think, that's ex- I think that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Like there's no, there's sort of, yeah, it's like, that's the, uh, the agony and the ecstasy of publishing. There's no avoiding other people in the end. I mean, there is, that's not true. There totally is. I, I've, I've heard people say that they write things just for themselves and that they have, you know, nine novels in a drawer. I, I mean, it's of all the sort of other mental states that exist in the world. That's, one of the ones that is most kind of inscrutable to me. I truly cannot imagine writing something just for myself. Um, for me, that the whole impulse is bound up in the the sharing and the publishing. Yes. Um, but and and so assuming that you're not one of those people who's like, yes, I will just write it for myself. Um, yeah, you you got to go out there at some point. Um, but you know, I I I really love the fact that um, that process of sharing things and getting feedback that too, you know, can kind of play out on the internet in all sorts of different ways. There's, uh, I'm sure, whole websites and apps built around that kind of thing. And and I myself, I really benefited from um, being, you know, when I was just starting out, this was 10 years ago, more than a little more than 10 years ago, I um, had these little short stories, you know, in that spirit of like starting with really, really short, compact things that you could finish that I published online just, just as dorky little web pages, you know, and I put a few up for sale in the, in the Kindle store where you can, of course, anybody can just put something up for sale for like 99 cents. And, you know, none of them made a huge splash. Um, but the simple fact of getting them, getting them out there. And it's not that people sent me feedback like, Oh, dear, Mr. Sloan, uh, paragraph seven is a bit of a dud. (laughs) I think you should, you know, speed that up. It wasn't like that, but you know, I could tell which ones works better than others. I could tell which ones were getting a better reaction. And and for me, that was really, really important. A crucial step of sort of um, yeah, you know, exposing myself to the real world of readers and getting some information that I could that I could use. Why well, I, I I mean I've I've done similar things and I, I I feel like it always you get to a point where you feel like you're you're climbing stairs. Where you're like, okay, I did this thing, I want to do something, I want to push myself, I'm gonna do this thing. Um, so you eventually get to the point where like, okay, I don't just want to release a a tiny thing that I can put out 
as easily as possible now, I really want to push myself. And that means like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm going to try to write a novel next and I want to do That's exactly what right. I can do with it. That's exactly right. Yeah, stairs I, Stairs are a great analogy. Actually, I, I often um, think of it and, and talk about it as stairs versus, you know, a sheer Right, that you're like staring up at the top and the very the top lip of the cliff is that nine book fantasy saga and you're like okay can i jump right no you can't you can't can i pole vault no (laughs) you can't do that either you got to build steps you got to build steps um i think that's absolutely um so and with well i want to i want to know more about perils of the overworld um more as much as you want to be able to tell me since it's still um being made and it's on hold right now but um one thing I liked about it, uh, as I was interacting with the stuff that you had put out in your newsletter, it really reminded me of games that I play that sort of let me use the muscles, so to speak, um, of storytelling. Uh, and here I mean, so, you know, some video games where you're in this really involved story um, and, and also realistically, it's sort of reminds me of um, there's these two games called Human Resource Machine and 7 Billion Humans. Have you heard of those? No, I haven't. So uh-huh. they're they are games that are kind of about computer coding. They teach you cool. like if oh, then cool. um, functions, and they're amazing. They're they're by this uh, place called Tomorrow Corporation. Um, that was one of the things I played those games, and I was like, man, I I think I might want to try to do some computer coding because it oh, was that's awesome. Yeah, I was cool. using those like kind of same muscles. So is that? kind of baked into perils of the overworld where you're like, I really want to use my storytelling muscles and my, my computer coding muscles. And I want to do this thing that creates something new. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I would say that for me, there's several ingredients. One is, um, the fact that I, I do enjoy playing games myself. I'm not like a huge, super deep, intense gamer. Um, but I do, uh, you know, historically I have played a lot of video games, um, and I love the games with stories. I really do. Or, or games, games that, you know, it's not necessarily that the game has, I think this is actually related to, to what you were just saying. It's not that the game has to have a story. You know, I think of like uh, Mass Effect or Dragon's, Dragon Age or something like that, where it's like truly a novelistic story is woven in th- through the gameplay. There's these other games that sort of suggest stories in a wonderful way, whether it's like one of the Civilization games or like the early Rogue games, you know, where mm-hmm. this little creature you know wandering through a, a dungeon made out of ascii art and and just the way that events kind of unfold you can't help but map it onto this like wonderful you know perilous adventure with twists and turns so i like those kind of games i don't really play the games that are all like twitchy and require like incredible agility and like all that kind of stuff they just don't click with me for whatever reason i am like a story game person so um you know again to return to that spirit of like mild annoyance that that fuels so much yeah. so much creative output um I love those kind of games but um one of the things that I just don't see enough of um and and you know who knows I I haven't seen every game in the world so I don't mean to to suggest that I have this like comprehensive view of the universe but in my experience um I feel like uh even the games that take story really seriously the writing just is still not there. It's still not at the level of like good novels and really good movie scripts or comic books or whatever else. It just tends to be a little flabby, a little lazy. And this is it's going to sound like the same thing, but it's, it's a little different. The text presentation is not there. Yep. Um, you know, the, all the other graphics will be so beautiful. It'll be like this incredibly richly rendered view of some sci-fi landscape or whatever. And then the text will be in some like crappy default font yep. and it'll appear in this like real goofy way. And it's like just not it's just not thoughtful um, and world class in the way that like a really good printed book. It's it's, you know type design and its typography is completely deeply thoughtful and absolutely world-class. So those two things together, like my admiration for the the broad genre of story games and my sense that like text is actually awesome. Like if we make the text front and center and like do a killer job with it, that could actually be really beautiful and really compelling. Those are the things that kind of led me to start to wonder like, okay, well, what could this game be about? You know, what would the gameplay mechanic be and so forth and so on? Yeah. I'm your, um, your displeasure, your displeasure with how uh, text is presented in video games was so interesting to me because it was kind of something I had never really thought about. Um, most of the my, my personal experiences with with most of those games is I kind of just ignore it, um, and 
I don't know that that's good or bad. I'm not really sure. Um, there's there have definitely been games I played where I was like, oh, that looks like crap. Um, but I I wondered because as you were talking about it, I was like, yeah, I, I guess he's right. You know, well, the one thing you talked about was like words scrolling or words just appearing, you know, the difference when and how those things uh, are given to the to the player, because if I'm reading a book, yeah, I don't need the words to scroll. Like they're all there. They're just there. Yeah, that's right. I, I think in a way, I think a lot of video games, you know, even, even when the writing is pretty good and the text presentation is like not totally atrocious, they fail to respect the capabilities of a, of a, of a really good reader. Yeah. And of course, like that, that's what we're talking about here. If somebody's not into reading, then like, I'm obviously not going to be making the video game for them. Right. But for people who are into reading and they are really good, fast, quick, you know, sort of capable readers, your brain, your reading brain, it just wants the text. It just is like, feed me, feed me, feed me. And um, yeah. And so I think all these like techniques that, that again, they're, they seem like they're very visually rich, like text kind of fading in or fading out or dancing across the screen. You do it sort of because you can, because like a computer screen offers those, those, it, it gives you those, capabilities those possibilities um but that's actually not what we want we want just like show me some really beautiful text and then show me some more and some more and i will say that i was sort of um emboldened in this opinion i guess you could say by another app that i made it's still available you can get it um you know for for the uh iphone um or or for a mac or or a windows um computer it's called fish and it's essentially an essay it's like kind of a essay about well, whatever. I, w- I won't explain what it's about. It's a argument I, I made about 10 years ago about um, reading things online and finding things online and, and some of our relationship to sort of liking and faving things. And um, uh, I released it as this as this app that sort of guides you through the text. And, and it appears in these chunks, really, really small chunks on the screen. And it does so in that really sharp, sudden way that I'm sort of describing. And um, people loved this app. They continue to really love this app. I honestly... And weirdly, one of the most successful things I've ever written in any <laughs> format. Um, and uh, and I think a lot of that owes to the to the style of presentation. Um, and so I I kind of took notes from that. I was like, you know, this maybe a little counterintuitively seems to really really work. And so what if I took uh, some elements of this format and I applied them to to something else like a video game? Yeah. Well, how, how did all of that stuff play into um, you writing for the the video game NeoCab? Because I know you did oh, some yeah. some writing for that. Well, that was you know in in a way that that's yet another input or another kind of um, uh, you know influence that kind of led me to think this might be an interesting project. Um, NeoCab was uh, conceived and guided by my friend Patrick Ewing, uh, just a amazing and actually he's one of the people I'm thinking of when I talk about the humanist programmers. I mean, just an incredibly talented programmer, but but really a philosopher and a poet and an artist at heart um, who I originally met uh, when we both worked at Twitter, the company Twitter, uh, many, many years ago. And uh, so that was his project. And to my great benefit, he invited me on to do just a little bit of writing for it. I wrote a a few of the many characters in the game. And um, I mean, it probably won't surprise you to hear. It was super fun. I mean, really, I mean, that that distinct from coding, like that writing for a video game is absolutely a case where you do use a lot of the skills and tools and tricks and techniques that, you know, that you've learned writing fiction. And at the same time, there's a lot that's different. I mean, if you uh, approach it just as a writer of short stories and novels, you are doomed um, because that's that's not enough. It's you know, everything from the way it all has to be structured because things branch and flow um, to, to literally writing for the screen. You know, there's there's some space constraints and it's it's all the stuff we're talking about. These these questions of text presentation and what's going to be readable and, and like kind of compelling and magnetic to the person playing the game. Uh, it was awesome. I, I mean, my my role in that game was teeny tiny, um, but I had such a fun time. And and boy, what a what a absolute pleasure, a delight, really, to see it like in the Steam store and like, yeah. available for the Nintendo Switch. I mean, that's just like the coolest thing. Oh yeah, for sure. So I mean, it sounds like you at a hundred percent right for video games again outside of the one you're creating. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's, it, I think it's great. Um, it's you know, of course, it I, it <laughs> it would have to be the right project. Sure. In, in the same way that I would like, I would like not probably write. For, I would probably not write anything in any medium that was about like. Okay, we need you to write um, a scene now where the main character is going to get decapitated. <laughs> that probably isn't going to happen, but it might. So you have to write it. 
I'd be like, I'm not really a decap- decapitation guy, so <laughs> you might you might have to go for somebody else. But um, given the right given the right content and the right sort of, uh, you know, I don't know, scenario, the right framework, uh, I would love to do it again. It's just it's really, really cool. Very, very challenging, very, very challenging in some really, really interesting ways. Yeah, I think there's um, well, I think there are I. it's weird. I think you're right. There are not a lot of video games that reach that level of a, of a really good novel. Um, I think some get pretty close, um, but I, it's weird because it's such a different plane of, of how I'm interacting with, with the games than, than when I'm interacting with the novel that I'm reading. Um, more, more recently, I played a game called um, Deathloop that has very good writing. Um, and, while I don't think it hits that that same level of a of a novel, I kind of don't know that it that it should even be compared to that. Um, yeah, I, that, you're, you're definitely right. You're definitely right. It's not. It's actually not appropriate to say like you know. Yeah, will will a video game ever achieve the aesthetic you know <laughs> heights of a novel? You're like, well, they're they're going in different directions. They are they are different things, and obviously, like like by the same token, will a novel ever achieve the sort of acrobatic thrill of uh you know a, a fast-paced shooter like death loop no it won't so like they're two different things i i i think it, as i as i think about that like the the sort of the the baseline or or not the baseline but the high watermark for writing just for prose quality in games i think actually you're right the very very best and most thoughtful games the writing there is it's really really good of course i still want it to be better well like, sure still like i run across things where i'm just like Mm, you could have pushed it a little further. You could have made it a little, I, I think part of it is that um, because the games where they're able to, to frankly afford that kind of craft and care are also designed just like blockbuster movies to be like huge mass hits. Um, they're, they're kind of restrained from being perhaps too like cryptic or weird or, you know, you can't see me, but I'm making air quotes here, <laughs> air quotes, literary. They can't be too literary. Sure. And of course, that's what I want. I want things that kind of like leave some some elements unsaid. Um, so maybe I need to just dig deeper into the indie games for for the the game writing of my dreams. On to your, your so your actual fiction, not actual fiction, your novels. Um so I was, you know, doing research for this and uh, there was a 2013 article uh, by Nick Bilton in the New York Times. Um, and he in that, you know, you talk about getting rid of phones and, de- and devices to, to help you focus on writing Mr. Penumbra. Um, and that was in 2013. And the Internet has only creeped further into our lives since then. So how does that compare to now when you're writing? Well, I'm still pretty good about shutting off the internet. You know, you can either do that just by turning off your Wi-Fi or, you know, blocking sites or there's programs that I have used at different times. Like um, there's a great program called Freedom that really it's hardcore. Once you enable it, it cannot be undone. Um, It insists that you will remain disconnected from the internet for, you know, an hour, two hours, whatever it is. Um, And so I use those whenever necessary. You know, I have I find them I found them less and less. I haven't needed them as much as the years have gone on. I think maybe some of that comes from confidence. I think some of that twitchiness, um, and everyone knows this, you know, you sit down to like start writing something or do anything kind of creative and you're like, okay, here we go. Hmm. What's on Twitter? You know, that sort of that little twitchiness. I think the part of that is a sort of, um, you know, subconscious or, or only partially conscious response to like discomfort. And your brain is like, oh, this is hard and it sucks. So I'm just going to flee for something that I know is like cool and will like give me a few doses of that sort of, you know, like mm, stimulation. And as the act of sitting down to, to do something creative um, becomes less uncomfortable as it becomes more natural and you just you know it's just something you know you can do i at least find find those twitches kind of uh, arise less frequently which is really nice that's a nice thing to discover um but still even so that's it's something you have to always be vigilant about and um i i think you know if if you find if anyone finds that they can't just like keep doing it if they can't like keep at it in a blank text editor window uh, just turn off the internet, find a way to do it. There's a million, there's a million different tools that are going to help you do that. And it's a real, it's a real boon to trap yourself with, you know, with your objective and, and nothing else to do. (laughs) 
Is so? Is that why you're not on Twitter anymore? I, I noticed you weren't there. Um, I didn't really see why. Uh, is that one of the reasons why you left? Yeah, that's one of the reasons. I I would say that for me, you know, it's it's interesting to think about our relationship with digital things over time. Um, so often, and I'll, I guess I'll just speak for myself because who knows? Maybe this is just very um, specific to my own experience of the internet and, and all the different sites on it. You know, it's always framed in terms of like the new and the exciting and like, oh, check out this new product or check out this new game or check out this new platform. And we don't really have, I don't know, I, I haven't had necessarily um, ways of thinking about things that aren't new, things that are in fact quite established, quite old. And I actually just realized over the course of, you know, maybe the last two years and, and the last year with more with more sharpness. I just was like tired of Twitter and it wasn't a sense of, it wasn't a sense of, you know, like, Oh, this sucks and it's ruining the world. Um, or, or, you know, or anything, you know, more acute than that. It really was just like, I've been on this site for like more than 10 years, more than 10 years. Wow. And what have I, what have, what have I been doing? Well, you know, it kind of comes and goes, it ebbs and flows at different moments. I think it's really fun and sparky at other moments. I think it's kind of like, Oh boy, what a churn what a treadmill of like, you know, links and memes and stuff. And finally, as I, as I just kind of interrogated my own feelings about it, I realized that like 10 years might be enough and maybe it's just time now to, to look at other things and read other things. And, and, and I, I also sort of realized this is a little, little darker perhaps, but I realized that if like another 10 years passed and I was still just on Twitter doing the same stuff, like kind of dribbling out little, little bon mots and, and sharing links and, and reading other people's, I would find that kind of depressing from the vantage point of another decade gone. So yeah, in the end, it was a kind of an easy decision to make. I just was like, I think I think that's enough time. And it's now time to, to strike out and, and find other things. Do you think, um, and really, the only reason I th- I'm thinking about this is because this is such a big thing in the world right now, our relationship to work. Um, is part of that related to that there is some part of your brain where it was like Twitter equals work because you did work for Twitter for a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, good point. No, I, I don't think so. Um, it, it really, I mean, because it wasn't, it was, and in fact, I, I probably would have been maybe happier and more successful on Twitter if I had treated it more like work. Though, yeah, obviously, <laughs> some people are very, they're very diligent and very systematic about the, the way they use all those platforms, yeah. you know, and and more, more power to them. I wasn't. I was I was from the old school of, and I, I think actually this is kind of, uh, uh, you know, emblematic of having started it so early. In its earliest days, Twitter, it's so weird to remember this. It's so like alien. You know, the things you tweet would be like, having lunch with Austin. You know, <laughs> right. It was this weird little log. It was this weird little log of your like day in this very natural way. And of course, that's what drew me to it. I, I liked that. And and still, you know, even even today, my, my favorite, my, my ideal tweet is someone like, tweeting a little observation of something they've just seen on the sidewalk. Um, but of course, those have become r- more and more rare over time as the years right. have gone Um So, uh, so yeah, no, no, no. I was actually, the, the truth is my approach to it was very like, very much that the flaneur or the person kind of just leaking little thoughts and observations out of their brain. And, uh, you know, I, I, I can just write those down. It turns out <laughs> I can just, I can just put them in my notebook and then maybe one day they'll make it into a novel. And that's, that's a fine outlet for that that kind of thing. Well, that is a fantastic way for us to wrap up because my last question, um, it, it really is around the idea of kind of my perception of you as a kind of radical appreciator of things that your newsletters, your books, your website, um, kind of just your online presence. It seriously feels like you are just celebrating things constantly, um, which is refreshing and and fun and that's one of the things that drew me to your stuff um but you know you writing those things down in your notebook um is that something that's always driven you just this idea of like finding and and uh taking note of and then later on coming back to to maybe understand the thing a little bit more uh, or does it even need to be that is is it as simple for you sometimes as just being like i saw a flower today it was a good flower. <laughs> it was a good flower. Yeah. Well, first of all, that's I, I appreciate you noticing that. Um, you know, it is it is a, a good thing to appreciate, and it's a good thing to appreciate the appreciator. So, uh, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, we can just keep we can keep stacking up these levels. It's great. <laughs> that's right. Um, uh, 
but yeah, I do, you know, I, I do think it's something that I, that, well, it's certainly something I value and I, and I hope that I'm good at it. And of course I, I like to share those things in my newsletter and, and in my books and, you know, wherever I can. Um, so it, it has always been something that's come a little bit naturally to me. I, I think anyone who ends up, you know, being interested in books or interested in writing, they always have some element of the noticer in them. It would just be hard. It would be weird to be really interested in books and writing if you just were so like insensate to the world. In sure. Way, I, like I want to know what kind of book that that person would write. Um, it would be actually be really weird and and probably like win a Nobel Prize because it would be so, <laughs> like so so radically strange. Well, I was gonna say so different from everything. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. At the same time, you know, and this this connects back to to what we're talking about, sort of different seasons of the internet and and the places where you spend time, you know, at different phases of your your digital life. I have to give a lot of credit to the blogosphere, the kind of yeah. network of blogs of the whatever middle two thousand say. It really didn't last very long in its in its full flower. Um, but I had a blog at that time that I wrote with a couple of friends, and I read a lot of other blogs. And that whole stance, like the the really like pure bloggers stance toward the world, which which was about noticing things. It was about like finding something cool. And maybe it was a news article. Maybe it was a project someone had posted online. I mean, it could have been anything, any link, truly. And you you share it, but you also write a little something about it. You kind of gloss it or just give this little you you kind of say like, this is what, you know, shimmered here to me. Of course, sometimes you could be critical, too. You could say like, this is cool, but. You know, I think it's wrong or I think it could be better in like mm-hmm. the following two ways. And, and I, I mean, I think that's part of noticing, too. And I just I just drank that so deeply. I spent I mean, that was my my Internet for for many years. And I actually think I learned a lot from that, um, from those people doing that blogging and from that whole um, that just that stance toward the world. And honestly, I mean, of course, it's impossible to know, but I kind of. I wonder if I would ever have written novels if I had not read and written blogs first. I think really something. Absolutely. I think there, I mean, I, I, I think I would have um, wanted to write novels, you know, ever since I was a little kid, I always kind of imagined myself as a writer, but I really think there was some, some cross training that happened in that period in a way that I didn't understand fully at the time that ended up being really, really useful. Among other things, it turned me into a great note taker. I mean, to, to this day, I think one of my great strengths as a writer is that I'm very, very diligent about taking notes about all sorts of things and keeping copies of them. And I, I keep them in a form that I can search and return to. And that all comes from blogging. So um, anyways, that is all to say that, uh, yeah, I, I, I do try to appreciate things. And I think that's a, it's a, it's a valuable skill. Um, to cultivate um, for any kind of fiction writer, but credit where due. Thank you to the blogs of you know 2003 to 2008. It was a it was a good time in a good place. Well, that is I'm I'm glad I asked that. You know that's very interesting to me. Um, to to hear blogs could could lead you like they did to to potentially you know becoming a novelist. And I mean, in all honesty, when I read uh, Sourdough the first time, because I've read it a couple times. Um, I remember hitting a certain point in it and being like, I don't know what the, the central problem here is. I kind of don't know what, what they're going to overcome. And it feels almost like the stakes are so low that I'm, I'm not sure how it could end in a way that will make me feel like the characters changed or accomplished anything. Having said that, obviously that's not where I ended up because I've read it multiple times. Um, and here I am talking to you, <laughs> um, but yeah, there you go. <laughs> I, I, I really did appreciate reading it from a perspective of um, someone who kind of falls in love with, uh, with this process of making bread. And obviously there's more going on than that way and characterizations and layers and stuff, but it really was part of it was kind of simple and <laughs> simple sounds like such a derogatory word. <laughs> It was straightforward, and I liked it. <laughs> no, I, I actually, I, I, I appreciate that maybe more than you, maybe more than you realize. Um, I myself so admire and respect uh, other books and and creative works that achieve that. It's not easy, you know. Like, right, exactly. Like, like when the stakes are low, you don't have that. Um, that sort of thrumming engine of like, oh my gosh, is she going to get decapitated? Right, keep you going. So you need other things, and in particular, it's it's at the top of my mind um, because I just just last night rewatched for the whatever you know dozenth time 
My Neighbor Totoro, the great um, yes. Hayao Miyazaki movie. And uh, once again, I just was struck by the fact that nearly nothing happens in that movie. Um, it's just it is just kind of one thing after another. These little scenes, of course, some of them are quite magical, but it has none of the sort of plot machinations that sort of like <gasps> right. of other of other, you know, stories that we know or even of other, um, you know, movies by that same studio that that maybe have a little more of that kind of um, the, of those stakes, you know, those, those cosmic uh, stakes. And it's awesome that it 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 goes for that and it achieves it. And um, I, I feel like my uh, my perfect books, the, the books that I most admire are are also the ones that do that. So thank you. That actually means a lot to know that um, Sourdough did that for you. Well, I'm glad. Um, well, I really appreciate you coming on and I appreciate you giving me insight into a lot of stuff you talked about. And I, I super look forward to whatever you're going to do next, that next book, uh, that next project that we don't even make, know about yet. And for me, Perils of the Overworld, whatever it ends up being called, if not that, whatever, I'm, I'm super excited for that. Awesome. That is your interest is duly noted and I appreciate it. Yeah, there's another book on the way and then um, with any luck at all, I'll get back to the video game. And, uh, and yeah, who knows? Who knows what else? More to come. Fantastic. Thank you again to Robin Sloan for stopping by to chat with me. It was an amazing conversation. I had a ton of fun. Hopefully you enjoyed it. If you did, let me know. Email me, ledgerbooks at outlook.com or rate and review and share and do all those awesome things on all of the podcast platforms out there. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.